And one of the questions was a, a kind of lay down as there about why are you interested in psychiatry? And I think I'd kind of practiced my answer like you do, but actually I think it turned out to be true that two things in particular stood out. It's just so interesting. How does it work that somebody's brain starts hearing voices or thinking they're being pursued by the people from Mars or, you know, whatever it may be. And the next person has depression so profound that they can't move. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our fifth SciPod episode, our very first for 2022. I hope you've all had an amazing Christmas and New Year's. It's a super important time to reset and reflect um, and start this year on a new page. We're super excited at SISM this year for what's to come and for what's in store. We've got so many ideas that we're looking to put into place um, and definitely for this podcast too. So we're really excited to see where it can go. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land we stand on and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. A special thanks goes out to the lead sponsor of our podcast, PIF, the Psychiatry Interest Forum, who have helped us out. SISM has received Australian government funding administered by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists under the Specialist Training Program. They've got some amazing resources, as we've mentioned before, so please feel free to go check them out. Joining me for this interview is Izzy, who was also in the previous episode, um, and she'll be helping out today as well. And before we go any further, like last time, I would just like to preface that in this episode, there will again be discussions of mental health. The description of this episode will have some more details and we really encourage you to please reach out for support if you feel that you need it and to only listen in if you feel comfortable and able to do so. So today we're joined by our special guest, Professor Malcolm Hopwood, who is going to chat with us about his experiences within psychiatry and delve into his tips and tricks on entering the psychiatry training program here in Australia. Professor Hopwood has a wealth of experience in his field, holding current positions of Professor of Psychiatry with the Ramsey Health Centre, and he is a Clinical Director of the Professorial Psychiatry Unit at Albert Road Clinic. He's contributed to numerous, numerous committees um, in areas such as Veterans Affairs, and is one of the Australia's leading researchers looking into psychopharmacology and clinical aspects of mood and anxiety disorders. To add to all this, he is a past president of the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists from 2015 to 2017. So it's fair to say he'll have some incredible advice on entering the training program for those who are keen. So let's start our conversation about psychiatry. Professor Hotwood will start us by giving us a bit of an insight into his career. So I hope you all enjoy this chat. Yeah, sure. So I am a psychiatrist, um, currently employed as the Professor of Psychiatry at Albert Road Clinic, a private psychiatric hospital, um, and that's a University of Melbourne post. Um, I've been in that for seven or eight years, and before that, I was a psychiatrist at Austin Repat for uh, 25 years. I actually started my training in the 80s at La Rundle Hospital, an older style asylum that doesn't exist anymore. Um, I guess throughout my career, I've had involvement in teaching, research and clinical care and quite an involvement in training um, and, and the affairs of the College of Psychiatrists, culminating in being president of the college 
for a couple of years between, I have to remember now, 2015 and 2017. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so we might start, I guess, with some of your role within psychiatry and some of the experiences you've had. So could you talk us a bit about the demographic, I guess, of patients that you work with and some of your interests within the field? Yeah, of course. Uh, in my current role, I run a professorial unit at Albert Road Clinic. And the commonest problems we see there are adults with mood and anxiety disorders. But of course, that encompasses so much because, you know, that can include uh, drugs and alcohol, personality problems, anxiety, and, and all of the stresses of life, most notably COVID at the minute, uh, that can contribute to mood problems. So that can be depression, bipolar, um, whatever. Um, we'd also receive other kind of difficult to treat cases. That's often a professorial unit's role. Um, in my past roles at the Austin, I was the head for a long time of the veteran psychiatry unit. So we had a, had a strong interest in trauma and PTSD and did a lot of liaison with neurology. So I ran a unit for people with brain injury and psychiatric problems and psychiatric aspects of things like MS, Parkinson's, epilepsy and so on. And uh, I, I guess that's one of the things I always liked about psychiatry that, you know, there's an incredible richness there of the kind of problems we see. Um, and, and during my career, I've been fortunate enough to look into a few different ones. Um, and, and, and it's been an immense, immensely interesting journey. Yeah, so I guess you touched on it just there, but um, I guess what we wanted to talk a bit about more as well is what got you interested in psychiatry in the first place. So you've talked about that richness and um, I guess how diverse it is. Was there anything that I guess struck your interest early on um, when you were considering psychiatry as a career? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. And I can remember as a medical student thinking about psychiatry, I really enjoyed um, my term in psych as a student. I was at St. V's as a student and they had, that was before they had a public ward, they had a sort of professorial unit and the professor who was there then was really interesting. So I found that quite inspiring and did an elective later on in the medical degree in that unit again. Um, it was kind of interesting because back then psychiatry was growing in popularity, but was still uh, I think it's probably fair to say looked down on by some people. Um, we won't mention any physicians or surgeons. Um, and so you kind of hid your ambitions under a bushel a little bit, but at that stage you had to do two years before you could get in. And I can remember the interview process to get into training. They, they used to have this strange interview where there were representatives from every hospital. So it's about 20 of them in the room, right? but only three of them ask you questions, which is very weird. Um, and one of the questions was a, a kind of lay down as there about why are you interested in psychiatry? And I think I'd kind of practiced my answer like you do, but actually I think it turned out to be true that two things in particular stood out. It's just so interesting. How does it work that somebody's brain starts hearing voices or thinking they're being pursued by the people from Mars or, you know, whatever it may be. And the next person has depression so profound that they can't move. Mm. Um, or that person 
how did they develop that abnormal personality? How does your childhood experience work together with other things? And, and I intellectually really liked that you needed to jump from perspective to perspective to understand things. I think, and, and I don't want to say this sounding like, I don't know, Mother Teresa or something, but I, I think when I entered medicine, I, I really liked the idea of helping, you know, the disempowered, if you like, um, and kind of getting to know their stories. And psychiatry's got that in bucket loads. Um, and in particular in psychiatry, we're still given the real privilege of getting to know people's stories. And even now, taking a whole history and trying to put it together in a complex second opinion, I really enjoy trying to think about, well, how does that work? And, you know, isn't that interesting that they had that experience in their life? How does that fit into where they are now or not? Um, and that's never lost its fascination for me. Um, and, and, you know, I've been lucky in my career, I guess, to have the opportunity to do different things, which helps keep it fresh. But fundamentally, those things still light the heart of it. And I think that is kind of the crux feeling that most people who get into psychiatry get as they go through medical school. I know that's kind of across the board. People pick up this, you know, real passion and interest for connecting with people and understanding more about their stories. Um, so it's definitely great to hear that that was kind of coming from your end as well. Um, I guess on that, so you've kind of done work with veterans, you've done work in mood and anxiety disorders, neuropsychiatry, um, all these kind of different areas. But I also know you've done a fair bit of research um, in those areas as well. Do you yeah. mind chatting a little bit about how you got into the research side of things too? No, I look, very happy. And look, I, it, it's funny, when I was um, starting out as a trainee, I kind of thought um, an academic, who'd, who'd want to be an academic? Um, the Because they seem to be kind of a bit vicious and they'd fight with each other and who wanted to be one of those? Um, but I guess going along with that curiosity about how things work, research soon sort of beckoned. Um, and I was fortunate to be in a place where people were actively researching because um, I think that, that like any path, it helps if you've got the right mentorship and support. And there were just so many questions in psychiatry well, still are so many questions that need answers, aren't there, really, um, mm. that it was attractive. And I, I think being part of a fertile environment where you could see people discuss those questions, um, do things like get grants, write papers, do research, was really helpful. Um, the Over the course of my career, probably the single biggest area of research has been mood and anxiety, particularly biological and pharmacological research. Um, and I, I love trying to understand what's happening in the brain. It's, it, it, you know, all that stuff about it being the final frontier, I really feel that very strongly. Um, and I do enjoy treatment-based research. It was funny, at that original interview when I got into psychiatry, I kind of talked about wanting to help people, but I think some people, when they get into psychiatry, it, it's predominantly about the desire to treat and help people. Um, I had that, but I think that's become more and more part of what I enjoy, actually trying to find ways to help people and researching new ways. Because 
Lord knows there's enough scope for better treatments. Yeah, you know, it's not not really a not a big problem. Um, and so recent research, we've been involved in a couple of projects with ketamine and eschketamine treatment of depression. Fascinating. Here's this novel mechanism, um, and we need some novel mechanisms in mood disorders, delivered in a different way with all of the history of ketamine that goes with it, right? Um, fascinating. And thinking about how to research it well with a treatment that's kind of over-anticipated. If you go to the depression blogosphere, people have been talking about ketamine for a decade, haven't they? Mm -hmm. So how do you then do research that's not biased by that? So I really enjoy the intricacies of research design. Um, like all researchers, I really enjoy the day when you actually get the numbers to sit down and play with. But I also enjoy the translation aspect because I think Research is only meaningful if it produces a change in the world at the end of the day. Sometimes that's, it's not going to be this change. In fact, a lot of the time. But the best research leads to better things for people. So that the translation of that research into action, I really enjoy that part of the process. So getting involved in working with bodies like the TGA and the PBAC to look at new medicines. Yes, working with pharma as well. A lot of people shy away from that because of the inherent potential conflicts of interest, and they're real, you know. Look, it'd be silly to say they're not, but it, it, it brings to the table resources and opportunities that are just really exciting. And our new treatments have got to come from somewhere, don't they? So mm -hmm. I love that. I, I, I also am heavily involved at the minute in some treatment outcome research. So we've introduced a new suite of general outcome measurement at Albert Road, um, particularly for patients with mood and anxiety disorders. It's just measuring their progress with treatment, heavily relying on their objective assessment of how they've gone as opposed to clinician rated. It sounds like such a dumb and obvious thing, doesn't it? <laughs> We're not very good at it. Um, surprise, surprise, it, it looks like the preliminary results are People who come into hospital get better. Good. And we've got six months data saying they stay better on average because there's going to be a hundred different courses, isn't there? I really enjoy that too. That sort of service level research that's, that's bringing better measurement and precision to what we do clinically. We, we quite rightly say psychiatry is a very individual art and discipline, and that's right. But that can sometimes end up being a bit of an excuse for sloppiness if we're not careful. And so measuring as well as we can what we do is a really important part of improving what we do, getting rid of practices that don't help, and measuring those that do, really important. Mm. Um, I could talk about so many other things. <laughs> no, that's really useful. Thank you so much. Um, and so you're right, there are kind of lots of different areas to go into research in psychiatry. And I think um, lots of people will know that psychiatry is very much an up and coming field and kind of ever changing on the research front. Um, in terms of maybe students or budding psychiatrists who are wanting to get more into the research side of things, how should they go about getting that, getting into that, whether it be kind of quality assurance as we talked about or more on, you know, psychopharmacology, any of that kind of stuff? 
Look, I think no matter what your area of interest, you do need those relationships to start with. It's, it's very hard to generate these things in isolation, for goodness sake. Uh, um, but one of the common things I talk about in journal clubs, um, uh, trainees in journal clubs love picking apart bits of research, kind of saying, how stupid were these researchers that they didn't put this bit in or that bit in? Of course, sometimes they're right. <laughs> but once you do research, you realise it's a heck of a lot harder than you think. Um, and there's a whole set of skills, attitudes and understandings to develop that we don't talk about enough. And there, there is training available, but that's not always easy to access. So for most people, a big part of that is being around others who are actively doing research. Seeking out those people is important, isn't it? I don't think anyone told me at the start, I wish they had, that actually, usually, if they can, they'd like to help. Because often approaching, you know, Professor so-and-so is a bit daunting. I've heard some professors are daunting. Huh? I don't know, you know, you can tell me later <laughs> if you like. The, um, but um, actually, most of them really like when people approach them because you're actually indirectly paying them a compliment. And most academics love to be paid a compliment. So you're saying, look, I think what you're doing is interesting. Can I be involved? And look, sometimes they can find a way to fit you in, sometimes not. But you can get involved in the seminars they run, meeting their research staff, reading their papers, hearing a bit about what's going on. Often the first opportunity can either be uh, a relatively simple project, such as an audit, uh, a chart review type audit, something like that. Or it can be as part of a bigger project. Um, and, and that can often be a really interesting way. Often when I'm helping someone start out, they're very keen to get experience um, and, and something that can possibly go on their CV as well. And that's fine. That's a good thing. But I also encourage them to think about what they're interested in. Because even at the start, it's much easier to follow through if it's something you at least have some interest in. If it's a project that um, someone like me is looking for a pair of hands to do the dirty work, yeah, you've got to do that a little bit. That's life. But you don't want to do that forever because it'll be hard to sustain your enthusiasm. If it's actually something you're interested in, it's a lot better. Sometimes at the start, it's hard to know what you're interested in, of course. You know, don't know what you don't know. Um, but don't be afraid to make yourself visible. People will welcome it. Yeah, and um, I think one reason why research is so, I guess, important for a lot of medical students or just anyone is to get that exposure to see what they're actually interested in or not and figure out what they're what they like because it's a really good opportunity to expose yourself to different things and um, figure out if this is what's for them so um, yeah thank you for all that advice I think a lot of people who who are looking to try and get research would really take that on board um, in terms of I guess I want to talk a bit more about I guess your um, your work with patients and, and that sort of sphere of things so can you talk to us a bit about how you provide support to a patient when they come forward to you? And I guess the balance between um, pharmacological management and also management in terms of therapy and talking to them um, and working through 
I guess, some of their issues and, and what they're presented with. So how do you exactly sort of yeah, work with yeah, the patient? Yeah. Um, so I, I think a, a good psychiatrist needs to have a boatload of skills. Yeah. They include the ability to do a comprehensive assessment that takes into account all those perspectives and to think about all of the possible treatment options available. Kind of by definition in psychiatry is like any area of medicine. If you've got to a specialist, your problems are not going to be simple. I kind of wish they were a bit more often. That would make my life better, right? But the, um, so it's likely that the answer is not going to be just do A and it'll all be over. It's likely to be A plus B. And if that doesn't work, we'll consider C, D, E and F. Probably even more than other specialties, effective mental health treatment is very dependent upon the patient buy-in. Now, that's going to look a little bit different in the case of someone who's currently very unwell and psychotic and unable to make informed decisions versus someone with mild depression and anxiety, isn't it? Um, but in all of them, unless the patient buys into the treatment, the chance it's going to work is definitely less. Even if not now, the chance it's going to work as soon as they leave your room or leave hospital shrinks away. So good shared decision-making is a critical skill as well. So if I take the, the kind of typical case, if you like, of someone I'd get with depression, there might be comorbidities with physical health problems, social issues, um, often anxiety or substance abuse tossed in for good measure. Um, all treatment begins with a good assessment. And I actually think patients really value that. Often one of the tips I give as part of that um, is about the value of a good history of presenting complaint. What that means the presenting complaint is the patient's version of what's been happening to them. So often my interviews will begin with the usual welcoming and then an opportunity for the patient to tell me in their words what's going on for them. And in five or 10 minutes, there's lots of evidence that experienced psychiatrists have often recognised a big part of the pattern and done a lot of their examination. The patient, though, also experiences that as a key opportunity. What do patients not like about what we do? They don't like it if we make a technical error. The left leg was meant to go, but sadly the right one came off. They tend to be unhappy about that, go figure. Um, but they also are unhappy about communication type problems. And, and I think at the heart of that is often a sense of being heard or, or not being heard. By letting the patient start the interview, it's not just clinically useful, they get out their story. I think all patients deserve a good discussion of what I think is going on, and that leads to a good management plan. We've just recently completed actually um, the latest College of Psychiatrists mood disorder guidelines that would give me guidance about what to do here. And they'd say for every patient with depression, we would look at lifestyle, psychological, and pharmacological treatments. 
So lifestyle would include diet, exercise, substance misuse, um, scheduling, purpose in life, relationships, all that. We would say psychological treatment, psychotherapy, should be part of the treatment for every patient with a mood disorder. Previous guidelines tend to say for severe depression, pharmacological treatment first. But actually those guidelines tended to overstate severities and excluder. The proportion of patients who are so severe and say psychomotor retarded or psychotic, so they can't participate in psychotherapy, that's actually a very small percentage of the total population with major depression. And sure, for them, maybe not. And maybe patient preference won't be for a psychotherapeutic approach. More patients like psychotherapy than pharmacotherapy, but not everyone. So we recommend psychotherapy for everyone. And then pharmacotherapy, if that's not working, or if their current level of severity is such that pharmacotherapy is indicated. So as much as balancing, it's about a menu, really, um, and not seeing them as antagonistic. Um, so often they're put as, do you do therapy or do you do medication? I, I always had a pretty simple attitude. Depression's hard enough to treat. If you've got a couple of things that, that work, what's the problem? You know, <laughs> um, uh, it, It's a pretty basic view, I guess. And the evidence now is increasingly clear that for most patients with major depression, the combination is superior to either alone. So I want to get out of the uh, fighting between them to say, hey, look, we're treating the biggest cause of disease burden globally. Get on with it. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, the point you mentioned just before in terms of the history of presenting complaint and, you know, taking that on board is really important because we're drilled into that from medical students, right, from day one, essentially. Um, and it's clearly a very important skill, no matter what stage you're in, to take a really comprehensive history and um, learn more about the patient from their own perspective and their own words, which is super important. Um, so thanks for that insight. The next sort of question we wanted to talk about was, um, I want to talk a bit about COVID and how mental health has sort of changed in this time. Um, what are your experiences with the patients you're seeing and, and how COVID has um, affected things? Well, the, the beginning of the answer is an obvious one. Yes, it has. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, I think we've got great global data now that says, surprise, surprise, rates of depression and anxiety particularly have gone up during COVID. Surprise, surprise. Um, and there are clearly a host of factors that contribute to that. And how much each is relevant will depend a little bit on how it's affected you. The impact of lockdown, the impact of economic disruption is probably more important to most people in Australia during the pandemic than direct infection per se. But I don't know if you're in the middle of Fairfield in Sydney at the minute, it might feel the balance is different. Um, there's clearly bereavement and there's also acute illness and ongoing physical disability with long COVID. There's really an interesting thing, and I do have direct clinical experience. 
to what degree is CNS involvement with the virus relevant to neuro, uh, sort of neuropsychiatric problems in the setting of COVID? We do have evidence that um, there is direct CNS involvement and there are clear reports of overt encephalitic illness that can take the form of a limbic or brainstem encephalitis, just like other coronaviruses. Probably like other coronaviruses, that's a pretty small proportion of people overall affected. Um, but there's a question, does subtler CNS involvement, is that relevant to things like depression or some of the cognitive symptoms of long COVID? I don't think we know the final answers there. Um, and I suspect that the answer will be difficult to sort out for certain. It reminds me a little bit of some of the evidence in relation to chronic fatigue, which clearly was a syndrome that was a collection of a whole lot of things. And what we're seeing in long COVID will for some people be very much about very direct effects of COVID and lung damage and you know all sorts of multi-organ damage, including CNS. And for others will include a range of experiences and symptoms that it's harder to know what's due to direct viral involvement. I think what's really important in that long COVID group, there's already a literature developing where many of them say, we're feeling like we're not being sufficiently recognized or people aren't taking us seriously. Well, that's death because that's going to terminate a, a therapeutic relationship. Um, they're presenting with real problems, even if we don't understand all of what they're about. Our job is to help. Um, and if in doing that job, we've indicated that we don't respect those problems, it's not going to have a good outcome. I think that's going to be a really important thing going forward. Um, the effects of, of lockdown and quarantine are really interesting, aren't they? And obviously yeah. of, let's say, a fair bit of debate, I think it's probably true. And, and we're seeing this interesting shift, aren't we? That early on, there was this debate about lockdown versus the economy. More recently, it's being pitched a little bit as lockdown versus mental health, isn't it? And yeah. I'm not sure I think that's really a satisfactory dichotomy. Because um, I think it implies if you're choosing lockdown, you're deliberately making mental health worse. Well, I think that's a bit simplistic, isn't it? Because um, clearly um, letting COVID run wild is going to have lots of negative effects, including but not limited to on mental health. Um, I think a more realistic question is how do you do these things in as least damaging way as possible. And I think at a public health level, the first part is actually, yes, being open and honest, quarantine is potentially negative for mental health. It's no point pretending it's not, sure. Um, probably particularly in some vulnerable groups. So the depression and anxiety literature says the rates have gone up the most in younger people, in women, in undereducated and those of diverse cultural backgrounds. Surprise, surprise, you know, there's no surprise in any of that. So thinking about how do we support those groups? How do we educate them? 
and how do we create service access where needed in a COVID pandemic is really, really important. Um, I am pleased in a way that mental health is part of the discussion pretty much from the outset of the pandemic, because I think I wasn't around when Spanish flu came through. I just want to be clear about that. But, but, you know, in in past pandemics, do I think mental health would have got a mention? Uh, I doubt it. So it's a a sign of how awareness of mental health has improved that we're actually discussing it. That's a a really good thing, um, I think. Um, But I, 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 yeah, I'm really worried about that dichotomy because I think those who are anti-lockdown and some quite virulently so, there's a risk they might use mental health as a kind of rationale, and, and that's not necessarily all good. You know, you must stop lockdown because it's bad for mental health. Uh, I think we need a slightly more nuanced discussion than that. Um, uh, I think that's really important. Um, of course, uh, the obvious message is probably the best thing we can do for mental health at the minute in relation to COVID is get vaccinated, for God's sake. Yeah, I think that's a very <laughs> a very clear and hopefully prevalent message that's coming through the community at yeah. the moment. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's really interesting what you said about the, you know, not oversimplifying things. And, and it is good that mental health is involved in the discussion um, and has been prevalent, I guess, um, in the discussion throughout, but it shouldn't be kind of used as the justification for why we do things. Yeah, correct. Mm. And I guess on that note as well, um, you know, everyone is affected by lockdown at the moment. And it, and while there are some kind of more vulnerable demographics that are more so affected, I guess we, we see it across the field and we, we'd certainly see it within um, medicine, within like the healthcare services, within psychiatry. Um, how do you personally go about managing your own mental health as a psychiatrist, seeing patients day in, day out who can present quite heavy burdens or heavy loads emotionally to you? Um, I mean, and, and that's a question that applies both during COVID and at other times, right? Yeah, yeah. The, and, and maybe in a way it's important to start with the how do you manage that generally and then how is that different in COVID if that's okay? Yeah, yeah, of course. Because it, 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 it's interesting if, if I go out to, you know, a party and um, people ask me what I do and I tell them the truth, um, that I'm a psychiatrist, <laughs> um, the, the two commonest comments I get um, oh, so you must be analysing me, which is kind of mm. pretty boring. And my usual answer is yes, and quite something <laughs> it's all over. Um, <laughs> uh, the, or oh, how do you put up with that? You know, hearing people's problems all day. Um, and I guess that my answer is usually about understanding my role. So do I hear about terrible things that have happened to people, particularly, say, in the trauma work, or terrible ways people are feeling. Yep, absolutely. Um, And being sensitive and aware of that is really important in being able to help and remain empathic. I think it's very important to recognise the limits of your role. First of all, I didn't create that. Um, I didn't make the world a bad place. It probably helps to be a bit of a pragmatist to know 
yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> you know, it'd be nice to think these bad things would never happen to people. They do. Get over that. Because if you're stuck on that, mm-hmm. is that going to help you help them? No. Nah. My job is to be able to be in there to listen and to work with that person. If they get a sense that what they're telling me is too terrible to listen to, that's just going to reinforce their own sort of negative thoughts about things. What's happened to me is so bad, it's unfixable, would be a common idea. Mm. So my job is to be able to sit with them and try to find a way to help. Sometimes when people are telling you the worst things, particularly at the start, it feels like you've got to say something really, really clever and magical. Well, um, it's a good thing to get over that Um, and to be able to realise, yes, there is terrible things in the world. No magic can make that experience go away. It happened. Mm. Very few people who tell you about trauma are making it up. Why would they? Bad things happen. If I'm able to sort of just stand still a bit and listen to start with, that's at least saying, okay, this is a shareable experience. We can survive talking about it. And it becomes possible then to talk about how do we move forward? That's my job. So it doesn't have to be magic at the start. And I think once I realised that, it took a little bit of pressure off. I think it's also important to be aware of your own tensions and difficulties in dealing with things. Mm. Um, So every doctor has groups of patients that they find easier and harder. I'm probably prepared to admit that at the start, patients with uh, severe eating disorders, particularly severe anorexia, I found that a bit challenging. There's probably a few people that say that's because they're more stubborn than I am. Um, And maybe there's a bit of truth in that. Of course, once you delve a little bit, it's not about being stubborn. It's much more complex and terrible for them. Um, But I had to overcome that a bit. And so sometimes reflecting a lot on, well, what do I bring to the table in dealing with a particular patient group is important. It's not necessarily that I'm bringing something pathological, but it could be a bit of a barrier in dealing with them. Sometimes it might be something that's within me or my past that that is sensitive for me that might influence that. Well, if that's going to get in the way of me helping them, I need to work out how to deal with it. There used to be the idea that all psychiatrists needed to have their own analysis as part of understanding themselves. We probably don't necessarily say that so much now. Um, In fact, we don't generally say that, or some people would. But I think there's a general acceptance knowing yourself and the things that are going to, you know, impact on you is pretty important. Um, How's that changed during COVID was the second part of the question. I haven't forgotten. Yes. (laughs) Yes. One of the immediate impacts is I'm doing a, a proportion of my work just like this, in the Mm. world of Zoom and Microsoft Teams. And how does that change clinical interactions? Well, it does. Um, 
it depends what I'm doing. For some patients um, and some tasks, like is your current dose of medication okay? You know, you're having side effects. Eh, it's not such a big deal, right? Um, where it's a one-off second opinion, where it's high stakes, what's coming out of that consult, uh, might I miss something? Uh, sometimes I think that's possible. The subtleties that you can get face to face. Um, the, the intense therapy, can you do that so readily via Zoom? Mm, sometimes maybe, sometimes not. Um, I think one of the other issues I've picked up during COVID is the sense for all of us that kind of time is standing still in a weird kind of way, isn't it? Mm. And future thinking is kind of a little bit testy at the minute, right? Um, when can I start to think I can regularly go and do stuff again? I don't know. And after a few lockdowns, I'm a bit reluctant to make a guess, you know? Um, and, and I think we also live in a world at the minute where there's reduced enjoyment for many of us because um, we can't do that stuff. So being aware about, for both myself and my patients, thinking about, all right, given that need, what are the different ways I can find pleasure in life at the minute? How can I do it within the limitations? Yeah, a little bit of us both blowing off steam about, oh, this is a little bit of a pain in the neck. That's fine. Yeah, that's, I think that's healthy, right? Um, but it is what it is too. Let's think about ways we can adapt to deal with this. Um, the other element that it's changed, just to introduce um, a bigger part of my clinical work now is inpatient care at the Albert Road Clinic. And like most hospitals during lockdown, patients can have no leave and no visitors. Mm. We've got the capacity through our um, governance to have, you know, the very occasional exception if there's some major event or something. And for the adolescents, we have a bit of variance um, for probably pretty obvious reasons. But that certainly makes inpatient care very different, um, particularly when, thankfully, not recently touched some wood, Someone needs mm. to get isolated and have a COVID test while they're in the ward. Um, and we need to be sensitive to what those changes in care mean for the patients in front of us. We obviously need to wear protective gear a whole lot of the time. Well, any other day, you'd say, it's a bit weird. The doctor who was talking to me about being depressed about my marriage breakdown came to see me in a suit, gloves and a mask. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really am untouchable, right? So I think we need to be quite sensitive to these things that we have to do, how they're coming across to the people we're trying to help. Mm. Um, and that's not easy when everyone's feeling quite uneasy about the situation. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I guess if we're talking about COVID, one thing is um, in a way that... Um, mental health is more affected but then when you're seeking support that's I guess a little bit harder and having that connection with someone you're working with is even harder so it's a double-pronged um, issue that, that needs to be dealt with. Um, the next thing I, I guess I wanted to hear more about you from um, was in terms of the training program and the college and medical students who are keen on entering and um, trying to become a psychiatrist in the future 
Did you have any tips and tricks for them in terms of these applications or how they can, I guess, better themselves to feel more um, worthy candidates and trying to get into the college? Yes, I, well, I should start with a, a, a rider that, um, so that it's particularly relevant to you. The college does have a policy. They will not include Geelong supporters. That's a definite yep, policy. Okay. <laughs> You're out. Um, if you barrack for Richmond, automatic entry. That's clear. Um, <laughs> just in case anyone's in any doubt, no, that's not real. Um, the, um, look, I think the, the first thing I always want to say is psychiatry is a great career. Um, and to encourage anyone who's interested, um, it's a great career. I have never regretted my choice for a moment. I think that um, like any career um, in medicine, it's interesting how we make our choices, isn't it? And I think early on, exploring that important. So beyond your initial student term, picking up the elective or for those universities um, that have a research project as part of it, that's a great opportunity to explore that interest further because often through the research project, you get a little bit more time talking to people about what it's like working in psychiatry. Often as a student, you're there during a term with a kind of specific purpose in mind and, and time to talk to other tutors. Hey, look, I'm actually interested. May or may not arise. I'd encourage people not to be hesitant though to do that and to say, can I talk to you about what it's like being a psychiatrist? Um, most psychiatrists, are, I mean, they're, they're arranged like any profession, right? but most psychiatrists are very happy because they, they want more. We know we need more people in psychiatry. So don't be afraid to tell people you're interested. Um, nowadays, of course, you can get into psychiatry at the end of your intern year. And if I could have done that at the time, I'm sure I would have tried because I wanted to get on with it, right? Um, one of the things the psychiatry training program look for, of course they look, did you do an elective? Do you have a referee who's a psychiatrist? Did you do a research thing? Got a publication out of it? That's great, you know, all that sort of stuff that's predictable. They do like it if you've got a clinical experience in psychiatry because you've actually done that and, yeah, you're still keen um, and weren't put off by it. Now, positions in psychiatry, and if you're consider, considering psychiatry, I would very strongly recommend doing one and trying to do it first bit of the year. The interviews, of course, don't happen at the end of the year. They happen around, actually, around this time of the year. So if you're kind of doing it in November, it's still good, but it's much better if you've done it in April and you're able to say, yeah, I did that. Here's the referee, really enjoyed it. Here are my personal reflections. Here's my 300-page diary I constructed. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, and they go, tick, this guy or this girl did their time in psychiatry. They still enjoyed it. They survived. That, you know, that, that tells us something. Um, I, I think that's something that's not always easy to know about in anticipation. Um, most people, the commonest training pathway is still into the hospital that you trained in. Um, 
at the end of the day. People move, but that's still the commonest. So the college determines you get into training, but the hospitals then choose which one you go to, and the two interact. Um, so if, if you're at Monash Medical Centre, go and talk to the people in psychiatry at Monash Medical Centre during your intern year or earlier and say, I'm interested. They remember that. So do I remember when I'm involved in choosing people? Oh, yeah, I remember they came to see me and, yeah, then we talked a bit. That They were keen. They've been obviously been keen for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, will I remember every detail? Possibly not. But, you know, it, it, it goes to your commitment. Um, and, and I think I appreciate the kind of maturity to actually kind of come forward and say, I'm interested. Um, so don't be afraid to do that. I, again, I think when I was an intern, the prospect of sidling up to a consultant and saying, hi, oh, you know, would, would have terrified me, to be honest. Um, the, and I wish someone had told me, no, you don't need to be like that. They'll actually be interested um, and they'll, they'll remember. The, the, probably one of the more important in that regard will be the director of training in that hospital because they're obviously very likely to be closely involved in the selection of trainees. Um, a bribery is not acceptable, um, but but actually establishing a relationship can't be a bad thing. No? The um, I, I do think of those other as I mentioned, an elective in psychiatry is a good thing because again I think you get a bit more of an opportunity to be part of the team than you are when you're one of six students, and just get a bit more of a sense of what they like. You don't have to do that in your home hospital, of course. You know, we all love to do the um, elective in an exotic location. Not so easy at the minute <laughs> um, for obvious reasons, but, you know, an elective, again, says a bit about an opportunity for you to try it on a bit in a more of an in-depth way than during your usual student term. Mm. Mm. And I think that's all really good advice. Um, definitely for those that are interested in psychiatry, just getting up with it early, trying to get exposure, um, trying to, you know, work your way into research, work your way into specialty placements or electives, just so you're getting, you know, the right amount of exposure and learning whether, you know, this is something you want to do. Um, and if it is, then you're starting to kind of build those connections as well. I think that is really important. So thanks for that advice. Um, I suppose medical students just generally, whether they are or aren't interested in psychiatry, when they first jump onto their psychiatry placement, is there anything in particular you think that they should be um, trying to get out of that placement or look for or learn about? It's a great question. I'd start my comments with saying they should all be interested in <laughs> of course. they're going to do it or not. Because no matter what they do, they're going to come across it, right? Um, and thinking... I don't need to work too hard during this term because I'm going to become something that doesn't do much with psychiatry. I better not dob in another specialty. Um, the, it's, it's the wrong way of thinking about it. I think it's interesting to think what are the key goals of your student term. And I actually think one of the main symptoms doing mental state examination and talking about issues like voice delusions, suicidal thoughts, 
um, and other symptoms that we don't normally talk about in life. And when you first ask about them, it can feel quite awkward and uncomfortable. It's worth remembering that the next time you talk about them may well be when you're the resident on in ED, the registrar at Mildura Base isn't very excited about this patient with a mental health problem because they can't stick a tube in them. Um, so you're going to do an assessment and decisions will be made based on your information. And the best chance of getting the best information is if you're comfortable asking those questions, right? So spending time during your term with patients, there's no substitute. Doesn't matter if at the start you find it hard to get the perfect history out. Sometimes nobody can. And you get better at taking history as you go along. It's just natural and time pressures will force you to get it. Um, just get used to spending time in that space, hearing the stories, asking the questions. Um, it, it's a great opportunity. So if you're thinking, ah, oh, look, the patients are in a group at the minute and that cafe across the road from Albert Road, as long as I'm wearing my mask, it's open. Cappuccino's really good there. And, you know, I deserve a break. Have it when you get home. See another patient. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you are exactly right. You know, I think it does come with the more exposure you get to patients, the more you're, you know, actively engaging with them and trying to get comfortable with um, hearing from them and also, you know, asking, you know, open questions um, and not being afraid, you know, not being scared about getting, you know, scary kind of answers. Um, that is kind of the way to go. Um, all right, so I'm just conscious of the time. Um, we should probably get towards wrapping up. I know time flies. Um, thank you so much for being with us today, um, Prof. Um, I guess to wrap up, do you have any final words of advice or anything that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, look, I, I, I obviously want to say to people, psychiatry and mental health it, it is a great place to be. It's full of challenge. Um, but it's unbelievably important. I remember when the global burden of disease was first published and in the top 20 causes of disability globally measured by disease, adjusted life years, lost all that stuff, six of them were mental health disorders. Mm. Suddenly, everyone was saying mental health was important. It wasn't just because of that, but that focused people's attention a bit great and suddenly it felt good to be a psychiatrist but actually you could look at that another way couldn't you we're not doing that well that's why they're in the top 20 right <laughs> so we really need to do a lot of work to improve what we do as well um if you look at that in terms of the, the global challenges we face there's lots of good reasons to be interested in and devoted to psychiatry right now yeah, I 100% agree. And thank you so much for sharing all your insights because um, anyone who's interested in psychiatry, it's a really good opportunity to, to pursue that and do as, do as much as they can to expose themselves. Um, and definitely we'll switch our team to Richmond next year to hopefully get a better, better shot together. <laughs> well played. <laughs> thank you so much.